Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, I'm posting this podcast on Monday, April 6th, 2020. I'm sharing the day and the date because the days seem to be blurring over these past few weeks. On Friday, March 27th, I launched a limited podcast series addressing how the COVID-19 pandemic is reframing healthcare in the U.S. You can find the 15-minute introductory episode I recorded and posted as episode number 82 on the Creating a New Healthcare podcast. In this limited series, I'm reaching out to interview future-facing, courageous healthcare leaders and entrepreneurs asking two questions. How is the COVID-19 pandemic immediately changing the way you're delivering healthcare? And how will COVID-19 reframe American healthcare for years to come? The situation is changing literally daily. So in order to share the remarkable insights from these interviews as quickly as possible, I'm going to be releasing a new episode every day or two this week and perhaps next week as well. These are unprecedented times, so I hope you find valuable information, guidance, and inspiration in listening to these experts and entrepreneurs share how they're adapting to this pandemic in real time and how they're thinking about and planning for the future. Now, in this episode, we are speaking to the absolutely unique and brilliant Micheline Davis. Micheline is an executive vice president at the Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas Healthcare System, the largest healthcare provider in New Jersey. She oversees policy development, government and external affairs, community and employee wellness, social impact, and global health. She is the first woman and the first person of color to serve as an EVP in Barnabas Systems history. She's a lawyer and trial litigator who has extensive experience in senior levels of state government, and she is nationally recognized for her contributions in healthcare. This dialogue is filled with more expertise, wisdom, humanitarianism, and hope than I could ever begin to describe. I just wouldn't do it justice. It's also an eye-opening description and depiction from a current epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic. In this interview, she shares her experience and her expertise on a wide range of topics, including the brave work that healthcare providers and staff are doing in uh, the hospital systems in New Jersey, the profound physical and psychological impact of the COVID-19 battlefield on healthcare providers and staff, the severely disproportionate and negative impact of COVID-19 on a significant and growing segment of our population who are socioeconomically vulnerable and the impact that will have on everyone in our society for months and years to come. And we'll end with a, a list of her recommendations for the work we must immediately begin in order to mitigate the second wave of the pandemic tsunami. And this is not an infectious disease wave I'm talking about. This is the tidal wave of repercussions from the social determinants of health, such as lack of income and lack of food and lack of a strong public health infrastructure. So without further ado, Micheline Davis. Micheline, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for taking a few minutes to speak with us today. I know how busy you are juggling so many different things. Before we jump into some of the questions, could you give uh, the listeners a sense of your organization and what you all do and how large you are and where you are? Sure, sure. First of all, thank you so much for wanting to have a dialogue about this. I am with RWJ Barnabas Health. 
which is the largest integrated academic medical center system in the state of New Jersey. We have some 15 hospitals spanning from the state's uh, northern point uh, up in Hudson County, uh, straight through the heart of the city, uh, and then down and along our shore coast. Um, So we have approximately 35,000 employees, uh, some 9,000 doctors, well between 500 and 700 residents, and we are uh, really uh, just in awe of the frontline workers who are, are tackling this every day right now. And just remind me, Micheline, do you have a payer part two, or is it a purely an integrated provider system? Purely integrated provider system. Okay. And your role in the organization? Oh, sure. Um, so I have the, the honor of working with these frontline heroes and serving as their executive vice president and chief corporate affairs officer at the corporate level, overseeing areas of policy and government affairs, uh, social impact, community investment, uh, which is really focused on the social determinants of health, global health, uh, healthy living, wellness, and engagement. Wow, that's a lot. And I specifically wanted to speak with you for lots of reasons, but one of which is your expertise and experience with the social determinants of health. And we'll get into that in a moment. Before we do, what is the situation like in New Jersey and in your main campus and across your your hospital systems in terms of the prevalence of COVID-19 hospitalizations, ICUs? What's going on there right now? At this stage, uh, as we find ourselves, we literally um, in the state of New Jersey are the third highest number of diagnoses um, right now. And so I wish that I were just saying, you know, in the continental United States, that that is not accurate. So as of today, there are 4,372 new COVID-19 cases in our state, which increases our state total to 29,895. In addition, there were 113 more fatalities in the state overnight, bringing overall a fatality total to 646 as reported out by the state officially. We do believe that, of course, because of the, the timing of when that data gets collected, but actually, unfortunately, that number is actually low and that we'll begin to see higher numbers and, and calculated going forward. So that's where we are as a state right now. You're in the thick of it. Everyone's looking at projections and curves and doubling time. So are you still in that ascent and are you still rising and haven't reached the peak of where you're going to be or are you at the peak? Oh, no. Um, so actually, we are, are taking a look on, you know, and listen, there are lots of models out there right now, but I think that taking a look at some of the ones that really seem to be evidencing out exactly that which they've been predicting. We are actually looking at the fact that we believe that the peak will hit, and not all of New Jersey, but but the northern portion of the state, which is where we have the majority of our facilities, by April 8th and 9th. Um, And so as a result of that, we are really trying to prepare ourselves for the surge accordingly. Okay. So you're about to enter the surge in the next week or so. Okay. Correct. Wow. So... How has the pandemic already transformed how you are taking care of patients, both in the hospital, as well as in the ambulatory primary and specialty care clinics, as well as a lot of the the neighborhood work you're doing and the home care work that you're doing? How has it already changed healthcare? (laughs) Well, you know, I think uh, had we had this conversation a few months ago, we would have been talking about the uh, traditional national trend of seeing uh, inpatient services and inpatient numbers go down and seeing outpatient services as the demand. I think that COVID-19 has rapidly changed that dynamic, forcing us to work with our partners and government to adjust the need for beds, modify facilities, provide immunity, create flexibility, 
um, so that we could actually respond to the vastly ever-changing needs of uh, the pandemic. Um, like many healthcare facilities, um, we canceled or postponed all elective surgeries or procedures to allow for all of our personnel to focus on COVID-19. Later, of course, our governor did the same, but we had already actually eliminated elective surgeries and certainly um, saw more about that across the country and then at the federal level. I think that teams have been redeployed and refocused. Folks have been pulled out of perhaps administrative roles, uh, especially when they have uh, clinical backgrounds and, and really placed back on the front line. Our processes and procedures have been altered to ensure that patients and staff are protected. Um, so everything from our visitation policies certainly have changed to our deliveries uh, and the way in which uh, they were uh, happening at our, our particular facilities with the temporary waivers and increased reimbursements for telehealth and telemedicine. Um, we have seen a dramatic rise in uh, remote clinical visits, and we've even been able to use our technology differently for in-person visits as well uh, to reduce the risk of exposure for our clinicians. And so an attended area in the ER, we are literally utilizing at one of our facilities a, a video robot that transmits a video to a physician inside the emergency room for further interviewing. And then if the doctor wants to hear the patient's breathing, an electronic stethoscope on the robot takes care of that particular request. I mean, we have been changing how we procure, right? While our GPO is feeling strains, we relied heavily on smaller local vendors, which were was already a focus. I think a great deal of even our you know, we, we've called in our behavioral health network as well and really put them in the front lines of clinical care as well in order to, to help and assist us. Um, and now having to uh, revisit that balance so that, quite frankly, uh, the calls that we are beginning to see and definitely expect to grow around just what is happening right now to the psyche of people, right? You know, years ago, folks didn't have a 24-hour news cycle. And so, you know, you heard it, it was bad, you turned it off, you know, you, you had dinner with your family. Now it's everywhere you turn. And I think that um, the physical isolation the really bad news headline, which quite frankly is factual and accurate, is also really um, beginning to take its toll on folks as well. Um, so we have, um, we and we continue to shift, you know that we have pop-up hospitals um, that are being designated at three of our places within the state, but we also have, uh, and we've been working closely with our Department of Health in order to reopen four previously closed hospitals in and of themselves. I've had calls from local elected officials who are willing to offer up um, everything from an ice rink to uh, a symphony hall um, to be able to utilize for us if, in fact, we get to that point. Our issue, of course, is the fact that, you know, anything that we erect, uh, we have to staff. And so how do we make certain that patients are actually cared for in our hospitals. Um, you mentioned our, our home care issues. You know, we're, we're experiencing that as well. Being able to make it through this time with the teams that we have, first of all, they are absolutely magical. They're incredible. They are warriors and champions and heroes. And if I continue to talk about them, I will likely cry. But they are also becoming weary and they are uh, scared, right? Which is really very understandable. Um, and so in some places, you know, we're starting to see folks who um, it's not like they're they're just electing the call out. They literally cannot go another day. And so we've even had to pull some folks out of that and have to do result to a lot more telephone and telemedicine consult in order to take care of some of the home care patients. So we are trying to be as nimble as the demand of the crisis 
But again, we are, as uh, an elected out of New York recently said, you know, our problem is that we, we are chasing it, right? We are running after it and, and that it is ahead of us. So we are really, as a large-scale organization, um, I don't think that Nimble is ever the term that they utilize for any of those, but especially ours, but we are nevertheless really trying to be as proactive as we possibly can. We need just as much as anyone else, my friend, the PPE and the ventilators that everyone else is hearing about. Again, our surge is just about a week away. And so we know that we are at the point that I've worked very closely with our governor's office on uh, the uh, executive order in order to grant immunity so that we can encourage clinicians to come and help us everywhere that we need for the really unfortunate, unfortunate, tough decisions that are going to have to be made. And by that, you mean triage decisions or? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because the amount of beds and ventilators you have are going to be overwhelmed. Correct. Are you at that point yet? We are not. Let me strike that. Right. I say that. However, we had three hospitals that were on divert um, just uh, uh, two days ago. Right. So I shall not say that, but at least across the system, you know, it really varies. It's coming as uh, everyone talks about it as a curve. You know, if you take a look at it as a wave, it has hit because of our proximity to New York, our northern facilities first. There are facilities within our system that are you know, farther down uh, our state, which only had eight or nine people. Um, who literally were, were COVID positives. And then there were others that COVID patients made up nearly 87% of the population. So it varies significantly, but we do believe that it's just going to continue to roll. And so for those uh, where it is not as of yet, it will be. Yeah, Micheline, you, you know, you're a lawyer by background and you've had years of experience with government. And so you're quite expert at policy. And clearly the intensity of need is there in New Jersey and especially in Northern New Jersey given its proximity to New York City, are the state governments, I mean, are we able to pull uh, resources, ventilators from other states that may not be as affected and, and will not be as affected as New Jersey or Northern New Jersey? Is, is any of that happening now? I will say this, you know, we're really fortunate that the current administration and the governor's office is really very forward-facing, progressive um, in reference to you know, let us do what we need to do in order to be prepared and have had a really great relationship and ability to have uh, lots of dialogue with them. What I will tell you, however, is while they have approached this in a regional way with the states of uh, New York, Connecticut, and Delaware, I believe, the issue there is the fact that, again, right, because we're seeing it coming waves, you know, anyone who hasn't had it yet can fully expect it to get there. And so whether or not we have literally gone to the point of of sharing equipment. I have not heard that dialogue happening. I think that folks are afraid to do that at, a, at exactly right now, as of yet. I know that certainly um, that the governor of New York had uh, put out a call to welcome healthcare professionals and indeed folks came from across the country and that he has said that they will do uh, the same. They will return the favor once they get through the surge and, and are able to, to do so. Um, we haven't gotten there as of yet, but I know that uh, a variety of things have happened. One, is the fact that you heard me mention the executive order that granted immunity that our governor signed earlier this week. Well, just yesterday, he also signed one where he literally gave power to the uh, New Jersey State Police in order to, to commandeer property, which included and was really focused on uh, being able to secure medical equipment, either from those who are hoarding and or those who have not volunteered it up, um, but also uh, to take a look at whether or not there are N95 masks that um, those who are in the developer community could possibly share, right? Construction continues in the state of New Jersey because they want to keep the, the economy going, but nevertheless understand full well that there might be 
life-saving equipment that actually hospitals and healthcare workers need to, to utilize. So I, I haven't seen it shared, right? We, there's nothing coming back and forth between us and Montana as of yet. Um, if you know anyone out there who wants to share it, please feel free. But uh, sharing uh, PPE across state lines has not happened as of yet. Of course, we are in line just like everybody else with the federal stockpile. Um, actually, the representative who uh, serves on the Homeland Security Subcommittee and chairs the Emergency Preparedness Subcommittee actually represents New Jersey and uh, Newark in particular, um, my dear friend, Congressman Payne. And so we've been in a lot of dialogue around that about what's going to be flown through FEMA and how we can possibly ensure that, that we get what we need. It's just so fluid as of yet that we're not as of yet sharing across state lines. But I, I would hope that states that do not believe that they're going to be hit would certainly raise their hand to do so. The issue you mentioned before of staff exhaustion, I've been wondering about that as well, and the impact in terms of mental health. I mean, this is a unprecedented stressor for, you know, even for professionals who work uh, in healthcare. And so, you know, I'm just curious if you have any more to say about that. I mean, I can imagine home care, home care under the best of circumstances is stressful. Uh, you know, I've been on lots of home care visits over the years and it's tough. Uh, you're going into neighborhoods. Uh, they're not always safe. And in fact, they're often not safe. And you're going into people's homes, you know, and you're working there in a very, very different environment. Now, as hard as stressful as that was before, it's just multiplied by many factor fold. So I just wonder if you could say a little bit more about that or about just the, the you know, what you're doing to assist uh, providers and or patients with the issues of, of anxiety and depression and isolation. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for even having a focus on how truly difficult um, this is for them. I mean, truth be told, this is a adult traumatic experience for all of our workers. It's one thing to be under the demand of the time, um, but also the jeopardy of the, the situation, the danger of the situation is significant. And so um, actually, it's our human resources has definitely um, been putting out every day just a message to our employee population for all of the the different tools that we might have in order to help folks manage through this are everything from our, our employer assistance program um, that, of course, is available to them 24-7, but also literally taking a look at what other supportive understanding online help in order to manage anxiety, things like Headspace, right, that provides daily meditation to an online anxiety reliever app and a variety of others. They have also been putting out articles, which really, because what we understand is that our, these frontline heroes, um, they may be superheroes, but they've got children too. And they, they come from families and we want to make certain that they have enough resources so that they are also helping their children to cope and understand, you know, what this is and, and why it is that you haven't seen mommy or daddy, right? Why is it that they went to work last week and, and now, quite frankly, we have put them up in hotels so that we're just trying to, to lessen that anxiety as much as possible, right? So rather than you so being worried about taking that home to your family, we're trying to make certain that you have a place that you can go and sleep and get your rest and, and then come back to fight another day, but that it's it's a place which which helps to ensure that they're secure and nevertheless make certain that uh, we connected them to our state universities, actually also our partner, in order to provide them with tools to help children cope with stress around COVID-19 um, and a variety of other things. You know, so we talk about that as the mental anxiety that literally the trauma of being exposed to the reality of the work, but then there are those other elements as well, right? So for our full-time workers, they know what, what we're doing for them and that, you know, they don't need to worry about any of them, but, you know, lots of folks are, have part-time, per diem, you know, et cetera, others and, 
and we're trying to be as creative as possible in order to ensure, again, that we remove any of the types of things that they were typically be concerned about. It sounds like, it feels like this is, you know, the providers and the staff are at the front lines, literally at the front lines in a war and going into a zone that is contaminated. And all the physical and psychological stressors that one might imagine in a war zone that is contaminated, they're experiencing with all the sequelae to themselves and to their families. And um, it just, it's a completely different uh, environment. We are in a different world right now. You are in a different world. And I, I hadn't realized the enormity of it. It's not like there's a, this was continuous. This is just a riff from before. And I, and I really appreciate you sharing that picture. And, and for me, the importance of it is, you know, we need those kinds of preparations, you know, those kinds of military level uh, industrial strength support systems in place, be they physical, as well as psychological, as well as social. I want to switch gears with you, and I am concerned that we're going to see a second surge of this pandemic, which is not around infection, but is really around the social determinants of health and the sequelae of not attending to the chronic diseases. You know, even the ability to take meds. I mean, people are so anxious. Are they taking the medications they should be taking? So I'm just curious how you're thinking as an expert in this area, a nationally recognized expert, in terms of the impact on the social determinants of health, in terms of the impact on chronic disease management, and what that means for us. Yeah. Um, so thank you for such a thought-provoking question. I, I will tell you this. You know, I, I think that you're absolutely right um, that COVID-19 has magnified the flaws in our safety net system uh, and provided opportunity um, where if, in fact, we pay attention to it, right, um, we have the opportunity to truly get stronger, to do what it is that Angela Glover Blackwell said in her wonderful piece, Curb Effect, really, if in fact we shore up the most vulnerable, then everyone else is taken care of, right? Um, it, it begged for increased coordination between programs and streamlined processes, points us towards how we can best use data, technology, and policy options uh, to really work across programs and, and across sectors, and propels our work in policy and systems change and equity, underscoring the need to advocate for increased resources, right? For more SNAP, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, flexible delivery of WIC, women and, and, and uh, infants and children uh, vouchers, increased dollars for affordable housing, livable wages. Um, but I really want to say something uh, to what you just said when you talked about those who really are suffering um, uh, with chronic diseases who are now home. And the reason why I say that is actually because of two things. One, I think that what, what the current situation has shown us is the fact that um, despite all of the national debate around uh, literally uh, growing a minimum wage up to a livable wage that actually Alice, right, the asset limited income constrained but employed across the country have become the saviors. They are the cashiers, the truck drivers, the fast food personnel, the dietary aides, the medical assistants, the janitorial staff, and that fact that they are continuing to work. So they're not home, right? These are also the, the same demographics that, quite frankly, really are um, doing all this work while they are still suffering, carrying the burden of these chronic diseases. And while many of them needed to figure out, you know, childcare schooling for their children who were now being educated from home, this is a population that has continued to work oftentimes without that PEPE um, because granted, you know, we, we needed it in hospitals, but they remain underpaid without health insurance and they rely on hourly wages. It is essential that sustainable long-term policies are developed to ensure that these individuals can meet their basic needs. But I'll tell you something else. 
it's really interesting that first when uh, the CDC and other organizations began to really talk about, you know, so, so who is to get a test? Individuals certainly took a look at um, the fact that, and I believe that this is accurate for the mainstream. For the mainstream, the elderly are so much more impacted. But I, I believe that what we are going to begin to see is that in pockets of vulnerable populations, right, in vulnerable populations, as you know, I often say, um, exists in every community. But where they exist in the greatest population density, what we are going to begin to see is the fact that, unfortunately, we're going to see record number of deaths, and they're not going to be in their 70s and 80s. Instead, they are going to be in their 40s and their 30s and their 20s. Why in the world would I say that? my friend. I would say that because as we take a look at the social determinants of health, what we know is that as a result of redlining, right, those systems and structures that have created the inequity in our society and environmental injustice, which has said not in in everybody else's backyard who has a, a higher socioeconomic bracket, but in that same area where those individuals are low uh, resourced and uh, underinvested in you know, that is where we will put the tire incinerator and the uh, cement factory and the countywide dump, right? We're going to put it in that community. And so these are the communities where individuals have grown up with chronic asthma, where they weather the stress of being without. And so as a result of that, they, they develop hypertension, not in their 60s and 70s and 80s, but in their 20s and their 30s. Um, this is where we see, you know, incredible levels of diabetes and, and um, childhood obesity. And so I have real concerns about the disparities that previously existed and the way in which COVID-19 will significantly impact these areas. And then if you compound that, if you just look in our state, at unemployment claims, which are being talked about nationally, this week alone, we had 206,253 filed. The week before, 155,815. We have had like natural disasters. We had Hurricane Irene. We had Hurricane Sandy. Everybody remembers that, right? Um, during that time, we had approximately 46,000 filed. And, and week by week, these are the numbers that we're seeing. So now we have ushered in from the Alice population, that asset limited income constraint, that, you know, working but still trying to make ends meet um, without governmental subsidy. We have seen them now just ushered in to the, the category of the most vulnerable. And then, you know, dare I, be, I begin to even think about uh, and talk with you about our neighbors without shelter, um, who are the homeless, who have all of those right? Same types of chronic diseases, um, but but simply are not at home. So what will we see beyond this? I don't know that I have answers for you yet, but these are the types of issues that I believe are, are really going to uh, impact our work in, in uh, the social determinant space. Again, I wanted to speak with you because this is the area that you have just such a depth of expertise in. Uh, you know, I, I've been talking about it and actually wrote about it recently as this sort of second wave of, of the pandemic tsunami. Uh, I, I don't think that I actually understand uh, how large that wave is going to be, given what I've just heard from you, the numbers here, what, what percent, and again, I, I think this is probably very contextual to the location and, and, and the region and the state and even within the state, what kinds of percentages of the population, for instance, in Northern New Jersey, are we talking about 2% of the population, 5, 10, 15, 20? Do you have a sense of that? 
So I don't have it broken down um, by like northern, central, or southern portion of the state. But it's I love that you asked that question because that's actually an ongoing debate in New Jersey, um, which part of is is of the state is is the most real to New Jersey. Um, but I will tell you that, um, and again, these numbers have been so fluid um, that I'm almost, you know, I'm afraid to give one out um, because I think that as soon as I do that it, it will be shifted and changed. Um, but I, I will tell you, they were initially saying that at least 5% of the state right now is, is, is positive. Um, and I think that that is such an undercalculation. We're not even testing everyone who, who um, uh, shows up in the symptomatic because we just don't have enough tests. So think about that. Yeah, no, I, I hear that. And the question I'm, I'm wondering about too is this sort of second wave or the second surge, the, the impact on the, on the Alice population what percentage of the population in your locality do you think will be affected, disproportionately negatively affected by the pandemic and by the sequelae that is to come in the following weeks and months and even years? So that's really interesting because if in fact we get through this and then you know we have the surge and then we come out on the other side, I would want to tell you something like 18 to 20%, um, which is really high. But I will tell you this, that if in fact we go through that surge, and we continue to see a curve that hasn't been flattened enough. I cannot even project that out for you. And because I really have significant concerns about what we've seen thus far. Um, and quite frankly, I think that, you know, while we were trying to, to do things to address, of course, our patient population, you know, because of our work in, in the space of food insecurity and transportation, et cetera, you know, I was literally working with the school systems to make certain that as they closed, that children would still be able to eat. So that's why when we start to say, you know, so how many, uh, you know, who's going to be impacted, who's going to be uh, affected by this, I, I'm, I, I just think that the ripples in it are going to be significant. We literally were um, providing uh, backup uh, through direct connection with our urban farmers and distribution to a lot of community-based organizations um, that were still at least feeding um, both uh, those who are without shelter and those who are, quite frankly, without the ability to go out. Everyone said, go out and get enough and buy enough groceries, enough food just to last you two weeks. But there were people who were like, I can't even, I don't have the, the wherewithal in order to do that, right? I, I don't have the money in order to do that. So we were even shoring up these community-based organizations until they began to be closed because their workers, their volunteers were finding out that they were positive. Um, and so we kept that going for as long as possible. Um, but because so many of them have, have closed, I, I don't know what else we're going to see now. I was going to ask you that. And, and so what... I'm concerned about, and I think what we're concerned about here in our region is exactly that, that these community-based organizations are, A, going to run out of food and supplies if they haven't already, and I'm beginning to hear that they are, and secondly, that, you know, it's not the situation where you can just come and, and congregate and, and go to these food pantries or go to these CBOs and, and, and their own personnel are getting ill as well, and so they're shutting down for that reason. So it sounds like that's already happened in a big way in New Jersey. Yeah, it, it definitely has. I think that, that what we're going to see when we come out of this, you know, so often in communities, we have so many well-intentioned uh, multiple agencies competing against one another um, for clients, for resources, for uh, an incredibly uh, shrinking limited funding that you're going to really need folks to, to clarify goals and needs and resources and, and uh, help the community move forward in a different and much more strategic way. They, they definitely are getting there. I remember uh, there was one entity that was the last standing. And so we were literally shifting our focus to them. And then I, I got a, a text from uh, their executive director that said, three of my workers and now I um, have just tested positive. So we're closing our doors so that we don't harm anyone else. I worry most 
not just about them, which I do, my goodness, um, and they've been my thoughts and prayers, but also um, about those who getting back to that population, right? Um, uh, and now those who re- have recently filed for unemployment, um, who still have these chronic conditions, right? So, so where have they gone to eat since she sent me that text two weeks ago? I'm curious as to when you think we need to start to worry about the second surge, this social determinative health set of issues. Yeah. So um, right now or yesterday would have been better. Um, I, I really think that, that we cannot wait. Um, I, I really firmly believe that individuals who are in the midst of this, you know, if we take a, a look at what, at, at what our brothers and sisters over in Italy um, experience, right? One of the things that they said was that as a result of the isolation and the fact that folks could not attach to their traditional resources, they started to see uh, social anger rise. Um, they started to experience looting. Uh, they started to experience, right, um, kind of their own martial law. They, they just were, were kind of vigilante doing things in the streets as well. And I, I think that if we do not pay attention to that, which we should have always been looking at anyway, which was uh, what was going on over there, um, to better understand what we needed to do here, um, I, I think that we're going to have so much of the same. Cannot tell people, we'll wait and, and then we'll figure out how to feed you, how to get you your meds uh, long after you are already dehydrated and close to starving. I, I, you, we can't actually ask a mother to do that, although we want her to, to show up in the morning and, and still uh, stock produce, right? We can't really expect a father to think that that's okay because he has to continue to deliver packages uh, or, or drive trucks. So I, I really think, my friend, that we've got to get in front of this right now. Um, I think the same thing about the equity decisions and, and discussions. I think that, um, you know, the most recent article in ProPublica about uh, what early data is showing in Michigan um, that shows that African-Americans have contracted and died of the virus at an alarming rate um, and, and really focus in on making certain that states and regions are tracking and monitoring uh, racial data as well, because we know that we have our disparities. If we don't pay attention to this right now, we're, we're going to continue to have the same subjective tests applied to folks. And so as they, you know, show up in their 30s and 40s and, and say, you know, I have a fever, I think I need to be tested. We're, we're not acknowledging the fact that based on what science has already told us, based on what we know about health inequities, that that means that this person actually does need to actually receive this test because of the, the likelihood, the propensity, um, the proportionality of that population that unfortunately uh, has been suffering from uh, structural systemic uh, issues for so long um, that, that their life is really going to be hanging in the balance if, in fact, we apply uh, a mainstream suggestive test. So it, it really, all of this has to be done right now. And I'm sorry to say that to those of us who are already losing sleep, um, because it means that there is so much more yet to, to, to do, so many more miles yet to, to walk um, before we ever rest. But our communities um, need it so much, they deserve it right now. Thank you for shedding light on this issue. I, I think you're, you know, again... You have such a good take on this. If you were going to give some direction now, if you had the year of the governor or governors, and uh, you may actually, uh, but what would you say we need to start to do? Yeah, Um, I I, uh, love the fact that you focus in on uh, just our public health infrastructure. For so long, we have had to uh, delay certain things in order to shore ourselves up, but now we see what um, it, what that delay does, right? It, it really 
um, provides an opportunity for ultimate crisis. Um, I, I would really recommend a variety of things. I think that telehealth and telemedicine is something that we should continue to explore and bolster. Um, I really think that we need to, to invest differently in ensuring uh, the public health infrastructure, um, but also that public health officials are the go-to um, uh, earlier in process in order to ensure that they are given an opportunity to craft um, uh, systems change so that we, we don't find ourselves in quite the same place again. We, we really need to, to continue to think about how we provide patient-centered support, helping individuals, how they want to be helped, uh, whether or not that is telephonically or virtually or in person. We really need to make certain that social determinants of health issues are not a us versus them. There is no us versus them. The haves and the have-nots are the discussion of, of yesteryear. Poverty is not that issue for those people over there. Right now, we are seeing how those at the Alice population level and most more vulnerable, even beneath them, are literally holding up the whole of our society. And so at some point, we need to make certain that we have a full um, uh, cognizant opportunity to shore up the safety net that they need, um, that it is uh, really for the best of those who have the very most, that those who have the very least are at least given a pathway towards a livable wage. Um, it does not make sense because for those who are without paid sick leave, they are going to still show up to work um, despite the fact that they do not feel well. And in so doing, they are going to be serving you your food and they're going to be restocking your shelves. And that virus is going to unfortunately be on their hands and you're going to bring it into your home. And I think that we're, we're seeing a lot of this, this right now. Um, so we really need to think about how we continue to, to really um, work with our, our communities too, understanding that those nonprofit community-based entities um, that they are frontline just as much as the rest of them, right? They are oftentimes first responders in our communities. What have we done in order to ensure that, that they have what they need in order to serve individuals? What have we really done in order to shore them up? Um, not just their capacity. These are brilliant individuals who understand that everything they do has to be done with, not just at the community. And so really, are we giving them a seat at the table um, as we, we reframe what it will look like in order to come back? From an operational standpoint, uh, we have more effectively used video conferencing uh, to connect across a vast region, thus saving time and resources. You know, what else can we do in that space? And are we paying the right amount of attention to ensuring that we are dealing with educational and economic disparities to ensure that the least of these have what they need to continue learning, uh, to continue remaining connected, um, to continue uh, growing up through the space that, that we know that quite frankly, they can when given a chance uh, at equal access. Listen, equity requires us to understand that we're all in this together, which I think is what we keep hearing on the, as we've been going through this crisis. Uh, Micheline, I, I think you said it. And I hope that our leadership, I know that we're focused on the here and now. Hopefully we're going to be over this surge in, in the matter of a few weeks, if not sooner. And uh, all the distress we are talking about right now, I think I, I think we're going to be left with that, and it, we're going to be exhausted. And yet, at the same time, we need to create uh, a new healthcare system and and a and a completely different one that I think attends to all the issues you were just raising. So, I just want to thank you for everything you do. I, I just thank you, and I hope we have a chance to reconnect again in a very few short weeks. I'd love to speak with you again. Thank you, my friend, and uh, continue um, on the on the battleground and, and pushing this work 
forward. Thank you so much for utilizing your platform to raise these issues. Uh, I deeply appreciate it. And I know that the people um, for who we provide uh, or attempt to provide a voice for the voiceless uh, appreciate it as well. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, Micheline. You too, my friend. Bye-bye. Folks, that was the interview recorded just a couple of days ago with Micheline Davis from the Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas Healthcare System in New Jersey uh, at, as you heard, one of the current epicenters of the COVID-19 pandemic. I can't even begin to tell you how important this interview was to me, uh, how hopeful, inspirational, and instructive it was. I hope it was beneficial to you. And as I do each and every episode, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or supporting those who are taking care of patients. In these times, uh, I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, our families, our communities, and our society. And my friends, I've been receiving some emails and messages on LinkedIn and Twitter from some of you. I I can't tell you how important uh, your messages are. So please continue to email and message me uh, again. Uh, it's so important, particularly in this time of, of social isolation. So again, my friends and colleagues, please take care of yourself and please share this podcast series with your colleagues. This is Zev Neuwirth. You've been listening to a limited series on how COVID-19 is reframing healthcare in America, part of the Creating a New Healthcare podcast. Until next time, be safe and be well.